Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Upset Patterns. I'm your host, Will Compernell. My guest today is Dan Hirschman, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Brown University. Dan, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Our topic today is what you call stylized facts and how they go from the academic world to affecting public discourse with a specific focus on inequality. So Dan, when you write about stylized facts, what do you mean by them? What are the defining characteristics of a stylized fact? Uh, I should first start by saying this isn't a term that I made up. This is a term that's been used by economists for about 60, 50, 50 to 60 years. And uh, it's a term, though, that gets thrown around a lot without, I think, a lot of reflection about what it means and how they work. What I'm trying to do my work is figure out sort of the history of these things and then what they're doing in our current discourse. So when we talk about stylized facts, we have in mind um, sort of empirical claims. They're usually rooted in some kind of data um, about something that is correlated or associated, some relationship that we observe but that isn't sort of explanatory or causal. So it's a description about numbers, usually some sort of quantitative description uh, of something that we think is sort of uh, an enduring feature of social or economic life. It's not like a one-off finding, but it's something that sort of repeats or recurs, maybe a pattern or a trend that we see in the data and that we kind of um, lightly paper over the details of to try to make sense of kind of the essence of it. Um, So I think it helps to think about examples Uh, So common circulating ones that I've been studying include things like the gender pay gap, so the idea that women make 80 cents on the dollar of what men make, um, or the recent rise of the top incomes, sort of the rise of the 1% and their incomes. These kinds of claims are stylized facts because they're, they're not super precise. They're not about a particular time and place, but they are about a sort of an enduring pattern or maybe a recent trend. And they're coming out of particular kinds of practices of analyzing certain kinds of data, but they usually get delinked from that data. The claim about the 1% comes from a particular way of analyzing tax data, but it circulates much more broadly than that as just sort of a general understanding that people's incomes at the very top have grown a lot. And so because stylized facts boil down this universe of scattered observations into something that is oftentimes defined for non-specialists or a public audience, kind of just get it down to one punchline, is there often a problem that a stylized fact is then either misleading or oversimplified um, and kind of counterproductive to the discourse? Yeah, I think that can happen. I think these things can be incredibly useful, both for academics trying to define kind of what the big problems in their fields are, and then also for communicating sort of academics' best understanding of what's happening in a certain time and place um, or in a certain social setting, what the sort of key features of that are, communicating that to a broader audience. But sometimes things get lost in translation. And that can be a big problem when the way academics are talking about or using a particular term or idea doesn't map onto at least how some people in the public think about this. And so I think the most common example where you see uh, a kind of recurrent gap in understanding is around the gender pay gap. Ever since this gap was first calculated back in the 1960s, there's been some confusion over about exactly who it applies to. When we think about women and men making different money, uh, for, for, for work, we tend to think about uh, discrimination within a job. So we tend to think about these very extreme examples of men and women working in the exact same profession and getting paid different amounts. Um, this is the only kind of discrimination that's really banned by law. That discrimination has never been a huge part of the gender pay gap. 
uh, the gender pay gap has always been more about how women and men work different occupations. Um, it used to be that women had less work experience. That's mostly uh, equaled out. But, but things like that, kind of other forces that lead women and men to have different careers and different career trajectories, some of which involve discrimination of other sorts. But it wasn't mostly about this sort of discrimination for uh, working the same job and getting paid different amounts. But when the number circulates, it's commonly invoked as if it meant that. Not always, not by everyone, but all the time. Um, this happens every year around Equal Pay Day. It happens whenever there's a debate in Congress over a new law around pay transparency or um, other kinds of measures to try to reduce the pay gap. It gets misinterpreted. And when it gets misinterpreted, it leads to this very unproductive uh, sort of debunking discourse where you get every year the AEI push out a report saying the gender pay gap is a myth. And they're mostly keying off the, the misinterpretation. So they're saying, oh, you think women are getting paid so much less working the same jobs, ha ha ha, it's a myth, it's not true. Um, and that's a kind of unproductive recurrent pattern in the discourse that comes out of the fact that the way sort of this number is produced and all the specialists kind of understand exactly what, what is meant by the number, but when it circulates, a lot of those you know, the kind of footnotes don't come along with the number. And then another example uh, that you bring up in your paper of a stylized fact is uh, the idea that countries, when they hit 90%, when their debt-to-GDP ratio hits 90%, um, it starts to be counterproductive to growth. And this was based on a, a paper by Reinhardt and Rogoff in the post-financial crisis world where governments were looking to stimulate their economy by spending. Um, there was obviously a backlash and some people wanted to push austerity. And so that 90% number was thrown out there and it obviously affected public discourse uh, in, in many regards, but it was later kind of, I wouldn't, I'm not sure if disproven is the right word, but it was much more nuanced than just saying there's this 90% cliff, but be, that number became such a ubiquitous part of discourse that kind of once the stylized fact became spread in the media, it's, it's almost hard to, to stop the momentum that it gets and it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, a great point. And I think there, that shows at least two really important dynamics. One is that one of the ways these stylized facts can do harm is if it turns out we, we, we sort of got the math wrong, that we didn't actually do the analysis correctly. So you get um, you know, one, one, one variety of sort of misinterpretation or problem is when uh, the number is sort of correctly calculated but doesn't mean what everyone thinks it means. Another is when the number just isn't actually correctly done. Um, and this happens, you know, not too infrequently. Data are complicated. There's lots of moving parts in any kind of analysis. And especially when you're trying to produce knowledge that's sort of relevant to a current policy debate, sometimes mistakes get made. Um, in the generous interpretation, that's what happened in the Reinhardt Rogoff case. Uh, they were trying to do some new analysis to update their long-running research program on how financial crises affect economies. And they discovered what they thought was a really interesting and important kind of uh, a cliff effect, where once you hit a certain threshold, um, you had dramatically reduced GDP growth afterwards. But it turns out that how they did that analysis, uh, they made a bunch of choices that most people think were probably incorrect, and a couple outright errors in their spreadsheet. Anyway, so they, they create this number, uh, and they, they produce this finding, and they push it really hard. So the first problem is that it wasn't actually, it didn't actually hold up. But the second problem was also the way they pushed it oversold what they'd done. And this is another thing that happens, I think, systematically, not just in this case, is that findings that are explicitly not causal, findings that are explicitly descriptive, get rebranded and sold as more powerful, explanatory, and causal than we know them to be. Even if their analysis had been done correctly, 
all it showed was a correlation. And as economists will love to tell you, you know, getting from a correlation to causality is very hard, especially when you're looking at macroeconomic statistics. But it's true in lots of other domains as well. So I, I, I don't want to harp too much on stylized facts because I do think they serve an important purpose. But, um, you know, two things that I think kind of resemble um, how you define a stylized fact, I'm not sure if um, you would put them in a different category, but two very often cited economic statistics kind of serve the, uh, a similar function. So GDP is meant to be this punchline number when people think, how's the economy doing? You give a growth rate and it obviously doesn't count in everything. It doesn't count in the environment or leisure time or work that's not done in the marketplace. And then another one is the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate is one number. Everyone can know whether that number goes up or down and then think, okay, the labor market is improving or it's it's worsening in quality. Um, but of course, weakness of the unemployment rate for anyone who studies it is it doesn't take into account something like people who are discouraged and drop out of the workforce, or it doesn't show you uh, part-time workers that would rather be full-time. And so in that sense, I sort of see some economic statistics themselves as a stylized fact because they are these kind of, you know, taking ma a mass number of observations and putting it down to, to one number. Um, and I, I believe, if I'm correct, that the statistic of GDP was made during the Depression um, by Simon Kuznets as a way because F FDR wanted to tell people, you know, the economy is getting better and he just needed one number to tell people. So do you, do you agree with this idea that uh, statistics themselves can be a stylized fact or function as one? So I think I wouldn't put it quite that way, but I think you're capturing it. They have a lot of similarities. So what both have in common is that there are a lot of simplifications that get made um, a lot of choices that get made to sort of include some things, exclude others, pay attention to some parts of economic life, not others. And you kind of have to make those choices to make sense of things. And so when people are putting together these broad economic indicators, which is how I really think about um, the unemployment rate and GDP and a few other big important things like uh, the current population or the current uh, price index, the CPI, there's these handful of really powerful indicators. And indicators often lead to stylized facts, a lot of our stylized facts end up being about indicators. Um, so a good example would be uh, one of the first stylized facts that was sort of uh, identified explicitly under that uh, under that heading by a guy named Caldor, an economist in the uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, he was trying to figure out what about macroeconomic life was sort of stable over time, and what he saw in, the, in sort of the newly available GDP data was that labor's share of national income or labor's share of GDP stayed roughly constant over time. And so that kind of claim that sort of the amount of total income going to labor versus going to owners, capitalists, you know, um, but labor's share being constant over time, that's a stylized fact because it's an empirical regularity. But it's being made using these indicators. And so you kind of have layers of simplification on top of layers of simplification. Um, and that's what we need to do because the world's very complicated and we're trying to reduce it to something we can make sense of in just a handful of numbers. And whenever we do that, we leave things out. And so the examples you point to around GDP are totally correct. Um, people have been debating for 100 years whether or not GDP should be including things like unpaid housework. But so I think there are, there are two different kinds of simplifications going on there. One is about kind of what sort of things are we going to look at at all? And that's sort of deciding what goes in the indicator. 
And the second is sort of which patterns we're going to focus on, on among those indicators, which trends we're going to pay attention to, what part of the data we're going to think of as just noise, and what are we going to think of as the real signal. And so I think of stylized facts as being built on top of indicators frequently, um, but they're somewhat different kinds of simplification. That said, I want to go back to the story you told about GDP, because it's close to correct, but I think it's importantly somewhat different from what you said. If I can do a brief digression on the history of GDP, would that be okay? I would love to. I'd love to hear it. Great. Okay. The first thing to say is that um, the idea of calculating national income, calculating some total of all the income made in the country, goes back to at least the 1600s. Um, and William Petty actually does some of this for uh, England and for Ireland in the late 17th century. And there's kind of a whole tradition of political arithmetic, which was sort of the terminology that was used back then, of people actually trying to create what we now think of as sort of macroeconomic numbers that goes back to about then. People do this on and off for a couple hundred years. They don't have a lot of success because there's not enough sort of capacity until you get things like um, a really like a robust state infrastructure that's taxing a lot of stuff and is able to collect a lot of data. You get modern censuses. Um, you get things like tax records. It's just very hard to know things at that level. And so we don't really get good sort of aggregate economic data like that until the early 20th century in most places. In the U.S., you start seeing sort of better and better numbers coming out of places like the National Bureau of Economic Research, which was founded in, in 1920, and its first ever uh, publication is an estimate of national income, which is kind of the precursor to GNP and GDP. And then they do that work for another 10 years and eventually pass it off to the Commerce Department. But the Commerce Department starts calculating national income because of a request from Congress, not from FDR. And the goal of that calculation was in part to figure out it was part of a broader set of, uh, of, of uh, attempts to figure out just how bad the depression was. Um, so that's, that's sort of like what you're saying, but it's not FDR's initiative. And what's also interesting is that they're not using the terminology of the economy yet. So they're trying to figure out how badly people are being hit by the, the depression, but they're not really thinking about it exactly the same way we do now. This idea that there is one thing called the economy that has a size measured by national income, that actually emerges out of the depression but we don't really have that in place yet in the 1920s. If you go back and read economists writing in the 19th century and the early 20th century, they're not writing about something called the economy. They're writing about markets, they're writing about trade and progress and industry and business cycles and things like that. But only in the 1930s do they start putting all this together and calling it an economy, and in particular measuring that economy with the sort of set of statistics we really take for granted as really parameterizing the economy, things uh, specifically GDP or GNP, unemployment rate, inflation being kind of the big three. Inflation's not really calculated in a routine way until the 1920s. Um, we don't have the modern unemployment rate till the 1940s, in part because you need um, good household surveys to get an unemployment rate, and we hadn't really invented like survey technology until the 1930s. And GNP and GDP first get calculated uh, sort of by the government in the 1930s and get kind of formalized in their modern version in the 1940s. And so all that work is, is happening, and the depression's a big kickstart to it. But actually, kind of, we, we figure out how we want to think about economic life through the depression. It wasn't all already in place. It's interesting, then, to think that um, what enters public discourse can be often shaped by the data available. You said the unemployment rate kind of became uh, a, a feasible thing once, once they got um, household data available. Um, and so to switch gears a little bit, in inequality discourse that has also been shaped uh, in the last few decades by the data that was available and the data that was available informs stylized facts 
which impacted how academics looked at inequality and then how it became part of the public discussion. So talk about how that process, uh, based on data regarding inequality, um, started the way it was and how it got to be where it is today. Data are a really interesting part of this story. Like, what are we actually able to see in the world? And with inequality and economic numbers, there's some interesting ironies. Uh, In the early 20th century, we start getting good tax data. So the U.S. creates a a national income tax in 1913, and that starts letting academics uh, look at what people actually make, like their actual incomes. Before that, you just didn't really have a lot of availability of data about individual people's incomes. And so in the 19-teens really 1920s to 1950s, you see a lot of studies that academics do about top incomes, that is the income of people who are making a lot of money, because those are the people who are paying income tax. Uh, Until the 1940s, most Americans don't pay income taxes. It only applies to a relatively narrow slice of high earners. And so economists spent a lot of time studying the dynamics of top incomes, and we knew a fair bit about sort of how incomes were moving in the top 5 or 10%. Um, as relative to the whole pie. Um, and you saw studies like this. And in fact, Simon Kuznets, you mentioned earlier, and Milton Friedman, who becomes quite influential in the 20th century as a sort of conservative economist, um, do a lot of really interesting work in the 40s and 50s around the incomes of professionals and, and top incomes, because that's where the data are. Um, they would love to do studies of the whole income distribution, but no one has those numbers. There only start being sort of good, reliable household surveys that include income data in the 1940s, um, what, what, the, what becomes the current population survey. And so we start collecting that data, and it becomes very influential. Once we get good survey data, there's all sorts of interesting things you can do, because you can look at people's incomes, but you can also look at their professions, how many years of work experience they have, their race and gender, their education, all the covariates you'd need to do more interesting, detailed kinds of analysis that we all sort of take for granted now of trying to figure out, for example, how much benefit do you get from getting a college degree? that kind of question. You just couldn't ask that question in 1940. Um, By the 1960s, that's all the questions everyone's asking. The basic idea that sort of economists and sociologists take for granted, that you could do a little statistical model and try to predict people's incomes based on their personal variables, their personal demographic statistics, that just becomes possible in this moment. And so once you start seeing big household surveys like the current population survey, and later things like the panel study of income dynamics and a couple other big surveys, everyone moves to working on those numbers. Tax data get abandoned. And so what's interesting is the tax data are there. The IRS is still collecting all the tax information. In fact, it gets better at doing so, and more and more people are covered by it. Um, But academics mostly stop using that data because it can only tell you a very limited set of things. But the survey data that academics focus on has its own problems. And in particular, the very people who were best covered by the tax data, those who are making the most money, are the worst covered by survey data. So there's a long-running sort of understanding in surveys that people making the most money often misreport their income, they underreport it, um, they don't respond to surveys as often maybe, but most importantly, um, or most sort of uh, obviously, we also know that survey researchers um, top code income. So when you ask someone what their income is, you have a bunch of different categories, or you have a single variable, you say, okay, do you make 10,000 to 20,000, 20,000 to 30,000, et cetera. And there's some top category that in the 1980s was say like $250,000 a year. And you say, if you're making $250,000 a year or more, we just put you in this last category. 
And partly that was about privacy reasons. Um, there aren't that many people making these very high incomes. And so if you looked at the data and sort of could figure out who somebody was, you wouldn't want their exact income known. Survey researchers, and particularly in these big surveys like the CPS, the Current Population Survey, would top code incomes somewhere around the 95th to 99th percentile, depending on the survey in the year. So you could figure out who was in the top brackets, but you didn't actually know how much money they were making. Um, but this wasn't seen as a big problem because most of the interesting action was seen as being in the sort of middle of the distribution. What's happening with blue-collar labor, what's happening with women's incomes versus men's incomes, what's happening with return to a college degree, all of those kinds of questions are questions about the kind of middle of the distribution. And so that's where economists and sociologists were focusing their attention, and the survey data was really useful for doing that kind of work. But in the meantime, starting in the 1980s, top incomes start creeping up um, quite quickly. And basically, we don't notice. Um, there is some popular discussion about inequality increasing overall, but a lot of that discussion is about sort of um, men's wages stagnating, uh, blue-collar wages stagnating, the effects of technology and creating unemployment, the effects of trade and possibly creating unemployment, those kinds of debates, which are mostly debates about what's happening at the middle or the kind of bottom of the distribution. And that's where the inequality conversation focused in the 80s and 90s. And that's where the data was focused, the survey data, and the research. In the early 2000s, uh, researchers, particularly uh, Piketty and Saez, these two economists, went back and basically redid the sorts of studies that Simon Cousins was doing in the 1950s and realized there had been this big movement in top incomes. If you looked at the tax data, you saw that people who were in the top 1% of the uh, of income bracket, their incomes had like doubled in the past 25 years um, while everybody else's incomes were stagnating. And that told a really different story about inequality. Inequality then wasn't just a story about whether or not sort of blue collar wages were keeping up with white collar wages. It was a story about whether or not the sort of incomes of CEOs, executives, finance people, whether those incomes were pulling away from everybody else's and sort of eating up a huge share of the pie. And that came to be how the public started to understand inequality over the course of the 2000s, kind of culminating with the Occupy Wall Street movement. And they actually take up as one of their slogans, we are the 99%. So they're literally defining themselves statistically against the 1%, um, this group that's sort of been identified by Piketty and Saez as the real winners of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And so what's interesting there is that Piketty and Saez, in some sense, were doing something new by doing something old. They went back to a kind of analysis and a kind of data that had been mostly forgotten uh, that let them sort of plug a hole in our, our, our sort of our, our system for looking at inequality that we didn't remember that we had around top incomes because we gotten so focused on survey data and the survey data just didn't let us see those movements. It's pretty interesting to think that that idea of the separation between the 1% and the 99% uh, is only... Um, as this data has become available, and, and it is such a part of public policy now um, with, the, with the last election, and as you said, the Occupy Wall Street movement. But to then counteract that a little bit, um, I wonder, even if this inequality became very apparent to, let's say, social scientists or academics and their you know, pristine ivory towers, um, does that mean necessarily that the public couldn't already feel the frictions. And so a couple years ago, um, Anne Case and Angus Deaton wrote this kind of, or published this paper that was a, a shocking revelation to many about this increased uh, morbidity rate um, for what I guess you could now call the white working class. And it 
precedes kind of the understanding of this opioid crisis that is going on. And so it, it was it seemed like a really big revelation for academics. But isn't it fair to say that before that paper was published, people living in those towns already knew something was up? And so in this case of inequality, you know, do we need academics to always tell us that something like that is going on in the distribution of incomes? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the answer is both yes and no. I think people often have a good sense of when things aren't going well, but it's very hard to then figure out what is happening or why it's not going well. It's hard even for people who spend their whole lives doing this, who are trained in sort of elite ways to do so, and who literally have access to all the resources one would need to make these kind of assessments. It's hard for us to do that work. Um, it's even harder for someone who also has a day job that isn't that. And so I think there may have been a sense, and there certainly was a sense in the 80s and 90s, that things were not going well. But there were lots of possible reasons why things were not going well. And you can know from your personal experience that things aren't going well for you or people like you, but you can't necessarily know how it's going for everyone else. Without access to some kind of perspective that you get from something like economic statistics and the kind of narratives that are built around them, um, you can tell certain stories, but you're not going to be able to see others. People certainly knew that, like, you know, uh, Rust Belt towns were getting rustier and that blue-collar jobs were getting sort of uh, lower wages and they were leaving where they had traditionally been, those kinds of stories. You know, you didn't need academics to tell people those kinds of stories. You, you also have journalists who are a key part of this ecosystem, and those are kind of stories that are very visible. When a factory leaves a town, everyone sees it, and everyone can sort of immediately feel the impact on wages. Um, but how that story is connected to the story of what was happening on Wall Street, the story of what was happening with CEO compensation, um, those kinds of stories are a couple more levels removed. And so there I think you need somebody to step in and try to trace the whole system rather than just focusing on any one piece of it. And that, at least in theory, is what academics can do well. Now, how that maps back on to people's sort of everyday understandings of what's going on um, is, a, is a sort of another part of the story. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But I do think that it matters when academics sort of come to consensus around a particular diagnosis of a problem, um, because it both because it shapes the policy conversation, which is honestly more attentive to what academics say than it is to the everyday person, even if it's not super attentive to what academics say. We're not the most influential actors, but we do have at least some pull in certain policy circles. So it has that kind of direct influence on policy. But I think it also does have an indirect influence in helping people to contextualize their own experiences and put them in a kind of broader framework. The current political climate has a bit of a rejection of elites, so to speak. And so do you think there is a transition away from the power of stylized facts, the away from kind of the power of academics to shape public discourse, um, or will stylized facts continue to have the impact on uh, public policy discourse that they've, they've had that we've talked about? Yeah, it's in, we live in a very paradoxical moment because we also live in the kind of um, golden age of data journalism. This is the era of you know, Vox.com and 538 and the New York Times upshot. There are so many more venues whereby academics, especially academics who are doing sort of contemporary data analysis, can get their work directly into the hands of a broader public. Um, and those outlets didn't really exist 20 years ago. Um, if you were an academic, um, with a handful of exceptions, you were publishing like little working papers that no one ever read. Maybe they came out in a journal, and maybe you went to a conference or like talked to someone, you know, a legislator at some event or something. Like the channels um, were much narrower, especially to the broader public. 
If you wanted to get involved in policymaking, you went to the think tanks, and they had their own kind of specialized route to get academic knowledge into the hands of policymakers, um, but it was very mediated. And now there's actually, in some sense, a lot, uh, it's a lot easier to get these things out there. And I think the person whose career best exemplifies that is Raj Chetty, the economist, um, who's done amazing data work, sort of building a little bit on Piketty and Saez's uh, work and ideas, integrating various kinds of administrative data. So getting data from the Social Security Administration or from the IRS, from the Census, integrating these huge data sets to tell really compelling stories with data that are actually, at the end of the day, quite simple stories, these sort of stylized facts kind of stories. And so one set of these uh, data that have come out recently are about um, which colleges educate students from the 1% versus from the bottom 50% of the distribution the bottom 20%. And so the New York Times had a series of these great data visualizations and there are a series of papers looking at sort of which colleges actually lead to economic mobility or are able to raise people up um, or get people into the middle class and which are kind of just reproducing eliteness. And so for example, um, the CUNY system comes out very well. And so some of the other kind of state schools that do an amazing job of taking kids who come from relatively poor families and helping them achieve a kind of middle class uh, income later in life. And that kind of simple descriptive data work um, using very complicated and big data sets is sort of a new thing in economics and sociology. It's more prominent than it used to be. But now that there are all these great routes to get it out into a broader public. At the same time, you have what's happening with particularly the Republican Party. Um, you know, this isn't a symmetric story. A lot of current politics is about asymmetric stories between the Republicans and the Democrats. We know there's a story of asymmetric polarization. The Republicans have moved much further to the right, and the Democrats have moved to the left. Similarly, the Republicans have moved much further into the rejection of expertise, especially social scientific, but also anything around climate change, for example. I do think uh, the very current moment is not particularly hospitable to the insights of academics on any of these issues at the national policy scene. But at the same time, I think it's a great moment for academics doing this kind of work to be able to get their work out directly. To give a very small example of this in my own work, uh, and some of my other research, I study uh, race-based admissions at colleges, so affirmative action in college admissions. And I and a co-author put out a paper, a very simple descriptive paper, sort of with a stylized fact kind of claim, showing how about 25% of colleges that used, uh, used affirmative action 25 years ago and no longer do. So there's this big chunk of selective universities and colleges that voluntarily gave up the use of the race in admissions, not because they were forced to do so by a ban at the state level, but for some other reason. And people didn't know that before, as far as I can tell. And we put that out there um, in a working paper, uh, and a journalist found the paper and wrote up a story about it using our figures and published it on Slate. You know, there's a lot more hunger for that kind of data analysis, data journalism, than there was 20 years ago. And so if you're an academic doing that kind of work, it's a great opportunity to, to have those conversations. Whether those conversations mean anything in policy right now uh, is a sort of separate question that I'm more pessimistic about. Yes, as a, you know, someone who considers himself also a, a social scientist, I'm, I'm trying to find optimism that people will value research and evidence-based approaches uh, a little more in the future. So we'll have to see. Well, Dan, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernell and recorded at Radio Free Jerome Studios in New York, New York. My guest today was Dan Hirschman of Brown University. Continuing in the conversation, email us at upsetpatterns at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page at 
facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.